Good morning. I asked my son if he wanted to sit in here and listen to me preach instead of going over to the children's church today. And he looked me dead square in the eye and he said, no, daddy. Being a good father, I said, well, how come? Trying not to display my apparent hurt. He said, well, last week I won in four corners and this week I get to count. And I do not want to miss that. I said, okay. I've also been informed that the clock in the back of the sanctuary is not working today. So, I'll make you a deal. If you can physically remove me from the pulpit, if I go over, I'll stop. (laughs) You guys ready? All right. I'll roll up my sleeves. We'll do it. It'll be fun. you remember it forever. All right. (laughs) You remember that time we removed him from the pulpit? Romans 10, 1 through 4 is, uh, it's really a bit of an extension of Romans chapter 9, and that's, that's why I asked John to start reading in 9, is it's kind of a closing thought by Paul as he transitions into uh, his next thought. Um, but I think it's important for us to understand, again, the background of Romans. Uh, you, you need to understand where Paul is, his mindset, what's going on, and it really does help us understand the text. So he's writing from Corinth, so he's in a place, and we know this because he greets, or he sends greetings from Gaius, and he sends greetings from Erastus, and Phoebe actually accompanied the letter, and she lived in a town just outside of Corinth. So we know all these things, that he's, he's there, and he's writing about 57 or 58 um, A.D., and this, he's, he's, he's getting ready to go to Jerusalem to give the offering to the, uh, to the needy saints there. And so that's kind of cool, right? He's, he's doing work, but he's also taking time and writing this letter. Now, we don't know how the church in Rome started. We don't know who, who it was. It wasn't Paul. Um, he, he says that. But it could have been uh, visitors that were uh, there during Pentecost and they heard uh, you know, Peter preach, and they maybe took it back to Rome with them. We know that Peter would later go to Rome. Um, it could have been uh, those that were dispersed when Stephen was martyred, uh, ironically, um, at the hands of Paul. Um, so we're not quite sure how it started, but the church in Rome by now was famous. Their faith was known. Their, uh, their willingness to worship and to stand up for Christ has, had been known at that time. And so Paul was very eager to meet them, uh, maybe out of a sense of curiosity, um, but certainly out of a sense of love. He just wanted to, to worship and to be with these brothers. Um, we know that there were probably um, several churches in Rome. They would be home churches. Um, we know that there were probably several of them dispersed, and they were a good mix of Gentiles and Jews, probably mostly Gentiles, which would make sense in the Roman context. And that brings us to 10, 1 through 4. So I'll, I'll read it again for us. And Paul says here, brothers, and, and the word he uses here, by the way, um, not to dazzle you with Greek, but he says a delphoi. And he's saying, brothers, my fellow believers, my, my, my fellow Christians, those who labor with us through this faith. He says, Adelphoi, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is the Jews, who he's talking about all through chapter 9, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge 
for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In four verses, it sounds like he's saying so little, but he's saying so much, and there's so much uh, history and uh, even theology, but even psychology here to unpack for Paul. He's going through a lot. In chapters 1 through 11, Paul's dealing very specifically of Romans. He's dealing very, very specifically with things, and he breaks these out. Um, but the primary thing he wants us to understand is this idea of justification by faith. That is how you are redeemed in the mode of it. How does it happen? Where does it happen? Who does it? Who's involved? And he's addressing all of these things. And this is why Romans appears to be so complex. But Paul is breaking all this out for us. And so in chapters 1 through 3, he's talking about this need for salvation. It's apparent. We are wretched. We are sinners. We are stuck. We are foul next to a holy God. And so Paul says, we need saving from this. And then he goes on to say, what is, and this is about three through four, what is the provision for this salvation? Well, Cliff's notes, it's Christ, okay? Christ is this provision, but he goes through all of the ways in which the law enables this to be. And then he talks about in five through eight, the freedom resulting from salvation. This is this Christian freedom, to use uh, a colloquial term, and how we are now free, not just to worship, but we are free to obey the law. And now we find ourselves in chapters 9 through 11. We're about two-thirds of the way through the book of Romans. And now Paul is dealing specifically here with the scope of salvation. So for the last several weeks, we've been going through chapters 9. We're in chapter 10 now, and we'll keep going through 11. This is the scope of salvation. Who's involved? What people count, what people don't count, okay? The scope of salvation. This is a very big question. In Paul's day, it's a very, very big question for you. What's the scope? Who's involved? Is it me? <clears throat> Paul struggles with this question, and it's a big question. It goes like this. If Israel is God's people, and if he gave to them the sonship, that is, the heirship, the, the right of birth, and the glory of the covenants, and if the Jews have largely rejected the Messiah and are cut off from heirship through Christ, and he deals with all of this in chapter 9, then has the word of God failed, or the promises of God failed? And if God's promises cannot be trusted, how does it stand with Gentiles, that's all of us if we're not ethnic Jews, who hope in the promise that those who God calls, he will also glorify. How can we be sure? If this Messiah has been rejected by them, if they have, if they have ignored and ceased to do this, where do we stand? And that's what Paul's going to address for us. It's very important, and he's struggling through this. You can, you can almost think like he's really trying to put to paper how to express this because he wants, he wants us to know. And he's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, and so you need the Spirit to tell you how this works. 
But this was a hard question to ask. There was a transition that took place at the cross, and it was hard to understand in his day, and it's hard to understand now. But we have the benefit of Scripture, and we certainly have the benefit of Paul's writing to get us through that. The short answer is, the word of God has not fallen. He does fulfill his promises, but it's not always in the most apparent way. We have to look. We have to study. We have to examine Scripture. And if you walk out of here today and nothing else is known, and, and, and you don't hear anything else, and you don't get all the fill-ins, which I worked very hard on, by the way. Um, not my thing, so I wanted you to have those. But if you ignore everything else, understand this. <clears throat> You have to be a student of Scripture. You have to examine the Word more than anything else because that's where the truth is found. That is our basis for truth. That is our basis for the way we worship God. God's purposes are unshakable, but it, even when we are shook, right? We get shaken. We get disturbed. We get scared. We want to run off, but God's purposes remain stable. And we have just a myriad of examples of this. We see all through, certainly the Old Testament, God chooses Isaac and not Ishmael. He chooses Jacob and not Esau. And, and you ask the question of why? Why is this happening? Well, he tells us in verse 11 of chapter 9, he says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his, that is God's, call. His purposes remain steadfast, even when it makes no sense to us. It makes no sense that the younger should rule over the older. It makes no sense. But in God's kingdom, those kind of things do make sense. He continues on. Uh, if we look at chapter 10, and specifically verse 1, it's really an echo of what Paul is saying in chapter 9, 1 through 3. I'm going to read that for you because it's important to understand Paul's heart here. When we're talking about Paul's evangelistic heart, it's important to understand what he's previously said. You don't ever want to study scripture in isolation, okay, or reverse. But he says here, and, and this is chapter 9, verse 1, I am speaking the truth of Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. But then he picks right up. If you look at, if you, if you move over to 10, 1 through 4, listen. Does this sound really familiar? Brothers, Adelphoi, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they, who? His kinsmen from chapter 9, that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness. They did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for everyone who believes. So he's iterating here, and this is a classical, um, this is a classical technique, right? You're writing stuff down, but you're iterating your ideas. And so he's echoing this, and so he picks back up, and he's using the same beginning argument to wrap up his argument. So the main point here, and this is what we're going to be working through, you can write this in, spiritual apathy, willful ignorance, and selfishness are not acceptable Christian attributes. Spiritual apathy, willful ignorance, and selfishness are not acceptable Christian attributes. 
what Paul is working through here is he explaining to us that the gospel is still for the Jewish people, his kinsmen, his brothers, but indeed all people. No one is excluded out of hand. In the first century, and even into the 20th century, um, right up until about uh, the beginning of World War II, there was no doubt that the gospel was for both Jew and Greek. This was not a question. Uh, there were certainly wayward uh, scholars and men throughout church history that um, would try to exclude ethnic Jews from the kingdom of Christ. Uh, we would refer to this today as anti-Semitism, although that word does carry way more baggage than just simply theological but that's what it was. Uh, but it was never taken seriously by the true church. The true church always stood fast. The gospel is for all people, whether they be Jew or Greek or male or female or slave or free, almost as if it says that in Scripture. And so we can rely upon that. <clears throat> the Holocaust changed all of that, though. In that period of history, when there was what we would term today a, uh, a genocide, um, the Jews became a people unto themselves. They became an underdog, a protected class of people. And something sprung up called two-covenant theology. So we sit about 75 years after the end of World War II. And just out of curiosity, is anybody in here 80 years old or older? Yes? Okay, couple? <clears throat> you probably have some memory of learning about this in real time. For the rest of us, the Holocaust is a bit of history. It's something we see pictures of or news clips of. Um, we have even lived so long now that it has become a conspiracy. Did it actually happen? Um, but in 1945 and in 1950s, um, this was a very real thing to be dealing with. And World War I and World War II brought about a lot of theological change. Um, certainly something we can't get into today. Um, but people began to realize maybe people aren't just good deep down. <laughs> We've had two world wars. Millions of people have died. Uh, and millions would continue to die even after that. Uh, with the rise of communism uh, taking hold in Europe. But in this time, there was a guy, and he was not the, uh, the, the originator of this, but <clears throat> his name was uh, Reinhold Niebuhr. Kind of, you say it kind of like neighbor, but Niebuhr. Um, he died in 1971, but he advocated this idea of a two-covenant theology. And it goes like this. The law of Moses, that is, we would, we would say the old covenant, remains applicable um, and valid for the Jews, while the gospel, we would say the new covenant, applies only to Gentiles. So both are complete and applicable in kind, but here's the problem. This flies right in the face of John 14, 16, which says, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. But there's that second part. No one comes to the Father but by Moses? No, by me, Christ, not me. He says, by me, not by Moses, not by Adam, certainly. They wouldn't dare say. So this idea of two-covenant theology takes foot 
And it's, it's real and it's out there still. Um, but this idea that the, the gospel could be split somehow, that there could be two modes, two means of salvation. And Paul, writing thousands of years previously, rejects this out of hand, almost as if he sees this, almost as if he had been battling so ardently against Judaizers. And this is really kind of a form of that. And so he rejects this out of hand, and he says, no, absolutely not. There is one way of salvation. It is Christ. It is the Messiah. And he goes so much to perhaps even in, in, in his physical, he weeps for his brothers his, his kinsmen, his ethnic brothers, that they're just rejecting this. The Jewish people did receive the covenants. We talked about that in chapter 5. We went all through the covenants. They did receive them, but it was always God's purpose. It was always God's purpose that the covenants will become available to all people. The promises are available to all people. It was never meant to live there. It grew there. We can learn a lot about Paul by reading Scripture, but in these four verses, there actually is quite a bit to be learned. <clears throat> he is distressed. He is frustrated. He's working hard. He's traveling all over the place. But something that he warns us about and something that he probably knew a lot about is some of the, the psychological dangers, the mental dangers, the apathy, the superiority that you can begin to develop in yourself, excuse me, after you are saved, after you believe. I've got mine. I'm good to go. I don't need anything else. I don't need you. And I don't need to do anything else. I am justified by faith and nothing else. Yeah, those things are true-ish, but they're also not. So Paul gives us four warnings that it's important to understand before we can really dive into this text. So this is, this is the first one on your handout. We become numb to those that are perishing because God will save them or God will save whom he saves regardless of our efforts. And this is a form of hyper-Calvinism. If you've heard the term, um, I won't flesh it out for you today, but just understand, this, this term is rightly uh, um, frowned upon, <laughs> this hyper-Calvinism. But it just says that, you know, God's going to save who he saves. It doesn't matter what I do. Um, I don't need to be evangelistic. I don't need to have a heart for the lost. And, you know, they'll still be saved anyway. But this flies in the face of the Great Commission. You see that in Matthew 28. Great Commission says to go and tell. Go and proclaim to your neighbors, to your town, to your everywhere, eventually going throughout the world. So you cannot be numb and still be honoring Christ. Number two, we become hardened to the wicked and feel no desire for them to be converted. This is kind of a comeuppance, right? Everybody loves revenge narratives. Uh, you know, guys at a picnic with his family, and something bad happens. They, his family gets taken, or, or worse, and they missed with the wrong man. And, you know, it's like an army of one, and he's going to go, and he's going to make everything right. You know, and we're, yeah, we're satisfied. He, you know, the bad guy got it. Um, and this happens in love stories, too, right? There's, uh, you know, the... You've got a real kind of a homely girl and, you know, someone takes her up and gets her a haircut and, you know, 
she takes a bath, and you know, she's prom queen. Um, right? It's kind of this comeuppance, right? Everybody loves that. What? Just, just take a bath. Just take a bath. Girls, just take a bath. Um, brush your hair and laugh at jokes. It'll be fine. So, but we all like this, but we also see this in politics even, right? You can't look at the news anymore um, without seeing these, like, these stinging headlines, right? Like, Pelosi does this and slammed Trump, and Trump does this and bashed this. And it's like, it's like you're, you don't even have to read the article because you've, you've now understood that, you know, punches were thrown and, you know, stings were made. And, and, but we all, we become hardened to the world around us. We become hardened to the wickedness and we become, almost in a sense, to go back numb to it. And so we just, we don't even, you know, we don't even want to address it. We have no desire for them to even be converted. I don't like those people. I don't want to be around them. Number three, we become apathetic to the lost and give up praying for their conversion. This is a selfishness. This is a laziness. This is a form of defeatism. Never, ever stop praying for the lost, for, for wanting their conversion. We know <clears throat> that many won't. The path is narrow. But you, believer, should never stop laboring. Four, our sinful human reasonings respond to the sovereignty of God. Those reasonings, noetic faculties, we've talked about that before, to the sovereignty of God by giving up on the Great Commission because we feel powerless to affect outcomes. This is fatalism. And this is really kind of a, uh, a second part to number one. But this is, we give up. We don't feel like we can actually do anything. And in a sense, that is right. You cannot do anything. You cannot squeeze your eyes tight enough. You cannot sit in a room dark enough that would ever save anybody. You are reliant on the power of God. You are reliant on the sovereignty of God. But you still labor. So don't give up on this. Don't feel powerless. There is power in prayer. So again, the main point. Apathy, willful ignorance, selfishness. These are not acceptable Christian attributes. So look with me. Let's go back to verse 1. He says, brothers. And remember, he's talking to believers here. This is a Delphoi. This is a very, very strong word. My, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is the Jews, is that they may be saved. So, on your handout, we are to yearn for the salvation of the lost. We are to yearn for the salvation of the lost. It is so easy to dismiss or ignore the world in 2020. It was in 2019, but you know. It's easy to dismiss the world. Technology has brought us unlimited amounts of information and it comes at us nonstop. And there was a real thing called decision fatigue where you're, you're encountered with so much information and you have to make so many choices that you eventually just kind of stop. Um, and and you, you naturally kind of regress into this apathetic, passive state. Just, I don't care, just do whatever. You know, as long as it doesn't affect me too much. Um, 
you might feel this way at the end of a long day, you know, and your kids are just peppering you with questions, and you're like, I just eat the gummy worms. I don't care. <laughs> um, you know, and, and yes, you can watch TV. Just try not to make it something too bad. I don't care. And, but that's real, right? And, and, but we, we've kind of grown to live in this state, and we don't realize it. All this information, there is nothing you cannot find on the internet. It is literally the information superhighway, but it comes so fast. I mean, you hardly even have to work to get it. And many of us stare at screens all day for work or when we're done with work. If we don't do that, we come home and we stare at screens all night. You know, when you, you, you get so absorbed either, you know, in television or your smartphones or your tablets, and I'm not saying to get rid of those things, but I'm saying it is a real danger for us to get absorbed in these things, and we become consumed with the greater world. We want to know exactly what's happening in China, and I see what's happening in the UK, Brexit, oh man, and then this is going on over here, and there's the coronavirus, which has really been around for 45 years, but it's new today, and, and all these other things, and, and we miss what's happening around us, right? There's the stereotype of you see people walking like this, you know, they even make like a car commercial. They're making, they're making new technology to combat the technology, right? So the backup sensors, and you're doing this, and so you don't get run over. And, and we get absolutely absorbed in that technology. And it's not the technology, it's ourselves we're getting absorbed in. We cast judgment on people just as easily as breathing. It becomes so easy to cast judgment. Social media has uh, made us completely void of decorum and courtesy. There are things that, there are horrendous things that people will say to each other on social media that you'd get punched out in real life. I mean, you'd get shot. People wouldn't say those kinds of things. But we say them, and we, because we're, again, we're numb, right? We, we want the edge. We want the shock value. And everything is shocking. And when everything is shocking, nothing is shocking anymore. Politicians will create divide amongst otherwise cordial people. Um, you certainly have neighbors that do not believe like you. You have neighbors that are on perhaps the opposite political spectrum than you. And on paper, and maybe even in a, uh, a public debate or forum, you guys might have strong words, but you go outside and you mow your lawn and your kids play together. Just go outside and talk to your neighbors. This divide is largely false, but it's still there. It's in our minds, right? Oh, you're just, you're, you're one of them liberals. Yep. You know, and they're like, oh, you're one of those right-wing Nazis. Um, and we use these words like, can you imagine? Can you imagine? So, ah, I don't know how long it was, 10, 15 years ago maybe, um, uh, Prince Harry, he's, well, he's no longer Prince Harry, but at the time he was Prince Harry um, in England, he went to a costume party, a, uh, it might have been a Halloween party, and he dressed up as an SS, a German SS officer. Um, very poor taste. <laughs> um, but because of who he was and because of what uh, Britain had gone through um, you know, during World War II, particularly with Germany, this was just absolutely looked down upon. Um, and so to, to call somebody such a thing, you know, even 15, 20 years ago was unheard of. Again, it gets you punched out. Um, but we use it all the time, all the time now. We just, we say these harsh things to each other. And here's the point. We don't yearn for too much anymore. We don't long 
for too much anymore. We long for respite. We long for vacation, right? And even vacations are work, right? You come home more tired than when you left, and then you got to go back to work Monday. Um, But we don't yearn for anything, and Paul is saying here, yearn for the salvation of the lost. Yes, they're lost. Unbelievers are going to behave like unbelievers, and they're going to behave like unbelievers to you. And they might be mean, and they might be nice, and frankly, some of the nicest people I know are unbelievers. But you still yearn, and you long for, and you labor for that. When you place an order on Amazon, you hit that button, you get those endorphins, you get that feel good, right? And, uh, you know, you, you go ahead and you pay extra for the prime, and so you're going to get it in, like, you know, maybe tomorrow. Feels good, right? And they, a couple hours later, they send you that tracking number, and it says, today is Sunday, it will be here Tuesday. But what do you do? You go and look it. You go, you go check that tracking number, and you'll check it 35 times before Tuesday, right? Because you are anticipating, you are longing for that package. I want my widget. The widget is going to complete me. So you, you yearn for this. You long for this. You want this package, and you check that tracking number religiously. That is the type of prayer action we are to take right? Do you want the salvation of the lost, your friends, your family, your neighbors, the guy you see passing on the way to work every day? Do you want it like you want that Amazon package? That's how excited you ought to be. When that doorbell rings, that was weird. Um, Doorbells don't do this, but for the record, mine does. It's cool. Um, And then the dogs are barking, you know, Um, you're excited, oh, the package came, right? That's the anticipation and the excitement we're to have for the lost. So going back here, though, Paul tells us something else. We're to yearn for the salvation of the lost, but we're to pray for the salvation of the lost. And there's three things here that we should understand. Number one, prayer, you can write this in. I don't think I have a fill-in. You can write this. Prayer works. It seems silly to have to say that, but prayer works. Look with me in John 15, 15, 7. If you abide in me and in my, and my words abide in you, this is Jesus, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. No, God's not a genie in a bottle. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask and it will be done. You can look at James, the brother of Jesus. He says, therefore, He's talking to believers. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. That's a command. And then he says, that you may be healed. There's sickness going around. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Prayer works. But prayer is work. It's mental. It's physical. It takes time. It takes focus. It really helps if you know Scripture. Now, I'll teach you a trick that there's probably been several books written about it by now, but pray Scripture. Simply open up and pray Scripture. You read it. Read it out loud. Listen to God's Word as they leave your mouth and then enter your ears. 
absorb it, and then pray it. God, help me. Help me to pray like Paul. Help me to understand the urgency of salvation for the lost. It's that simple. So prayer works. Prayer is work. But prayer is works. We were saved for good works. Ephesians 2.10 We were saved for this. This is something where we commune with God where it is edifying to us personally when we pray, but it is also edifying to the body. We intercede for each other. We long for each other. We yearn for each other. We care for each other's needs. But it's works, and it's good, and it's honorable. So yearn, pray, we ache for the lost. And this is what Paul is doing in verse 1. He is aching, not just for his brothers, but this is for the lost. Oh, that they would be saved, I would count myself accursed. Has anybody ever thought that? Has anybody ever said, I, I wish that I could give up my salvation so that somebody I know could be? That is a deeply effective prayer. Look at verse 2. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So we are to be knowledgeable of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we can teach the lost. Theology isn't just for pastors and academics, and everyone is a theologian. Yes, um, some are good theologians, some are poor theologians, but even unbelievers do theology. Right? Theology literally being the study of God. So how does an unbeliever do theology? Well, the unbeliever, just like the believer, seeks to understand God and their relationship to him. Good. Same path. Right? Believers want to understand God and their relationship to him. But the unbeliever ultimately rejects God. Whereas the believer ultimately rejects themselves. In light of and in view of a righteous and holy God, the believer says, I'm nothing. I, I can be nothing. I can do nothing. Whereas the unbeliever doubles down and they reject God. The unbeliever, in their seeking to understand God and their relationship to him, ends their study with their own reflection. They see themselves. They become their own God. Nothing can be greater than me. Nothing can become greater than my achievements, my desires, my goals, my ends. I decide the end. I decide the means. Whereas the unbeliever, his reflection ends with that of Christ. His goal is to glorify God and seek to resemble Christ more. So both are doing theology Both are zealous, but not according to knowledge for the unbeliever. Paul says, indeed, the Jewish people did have a zeal for God. They were passionate in their observance and their worship of God, but they missed the knowledge. They missed Christ. When you see here in this verse that they had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, that knowledge is Christ. They had the covenants. They had time Time and time and time again. 
even in Jesus' day, they could have gone right down to the temple and looked up his genealogy. The temple was still there. The records had not been destroyed yet. All the keys, all the clues, all the arrows to Messiah were pointing right to him, but they missed it, not just in his lifetime, but then after the resurrection, which was a very visible event. They still missed it. Paul understands the traditions and the motivations of the Jewish people, and he summarizes it here in verse 2. Basically, to use um, a, a common term, Paul is saying they were all head and no heart. They had all the drive, they had all the passion, but they didn't understand it. It was, it was misled. But the, the thing is, and the irony is, is the Jewish people, they rightly rejected the idolatry and the polytheism of the pagan Gentiles. They should have, and they were right to. But they missed the righteousness of God, and that is to say they missed Christ and continue to even. A couple things worth noting here. When we're talking about this zealousness, when we're talking about zeal and what it means for us, sincerity does not equal authenticity. Sincerity does not equal authenticity. You can be sincere about all kinds of things. You can sincerely love another person that is not your spouse. And you can sincerely convince yourself that your family is better off without you. You can sincerely, con sincerely convince yourself that it's okay to take money from your company because, well, they're not going to miss it and you need it more anyway and they should have given you a raise. Like I said, they were going to those jerks. You can sincerely believe that the earth is flat. You can sincerely believe all kinds of things, but it doesn't mean it's authentic. It could be. You could authentically be a jerk and leave your family. That's authentic. But sincerity does not equal authenticity. Just because you want to believe it doesn't make it real. And then the second thing is energy without direction is chaos. Energy without direction is chaos. This is that zeal. They were zealous for God, but in all of the wrong ways. Again, they had the covenants. They had the law. They had the means. And they propped up their own righteousness. They propped up their own knowledge. And that zealousness became chaos. And so it is for us. Energy without direction is chaos. And then living your own truth falls short of the gospel. Living your own truth falls short of the gospel. This is a big phrase today. I'm just living my truth. I'm running my race. I'm doing my thing. You do your thing, I'll do mine. And that's so sad. We've, we've given up even. This is probably the more sad of, of all three of these. Just live your own truth. But that falls short of the gospel. You don't get to establish what the truth is. Scripture does. And Scripture says the source of truth is Christ, in which we are commanded to proclaim his gospel. Think about it like this. You have, is anybody in here run triathlons? No? Seen it? Okay. Yeah, scare, scare, scares me, okay? Um, 
But I, I actually know people that run triathlons, and there's an immense amount of training that goes into this, and you have to have special gear, and you have to have the tight pants, but special tight pants, and you have to have, you know, you got to have the head, you know, the, the head covering on bald, so I don't have to do that, but the goggles for the swim, and then you have to have the right shoes, you know, for when you're riding the bike, that clip into the bike, you know, and the bike is like $2,000. And then you have to have, you know, special shoes. And so you have to have all of this stuff, right? You have to have all of these things, your belt that holds your water bottle. Um, and you have all of this. So if you had all this, though, but you were just, you had it all, but you were just too lazy to run the race, or you just like to show up to the races, you know, and kind of like stand around. When I was a kid, we called these posers, um, these were the, you know, the people that showed up with, like, it, I'm, I might be aging myself here. I think people still play basketball. But you had, you know, like, the, the official NBA Jordan jersey, you know, because he was the best basketball player of all time. Um, and you had the shoes and the socks and the shorts, you know, and you had the brand new ball, and you'd show up to the court, but you really couldn't play at all, and you really had no desire, but you wanted to be seen as such, right? That is sad. But then opposite, right? If you had the same, you know, triathlete that, you know, they had all the training and they were really good at this. They could hold their breath for a long time and they could open water swim and their endurance was just incredible that they could ride the bike and they could run and it was great and, uh, but they just didn't have the, the means or the equipment to participate. Well, that's equally as sad. And that's where we find ourselves with zeal without knowledge. We're just in this sad state. We either show up with all the right equipment and, and don't even know what to do, or we have all the, all the know-how, but none of the equipment, and it's just chaotic. It's, it's messy. It's silly. It's, it's unnecessary, and that's where we find ourselves. But as believers, we must be students of Scripture. We must fall back on this. If we're, looking, if we're talking about knowledge, but according to knowledge, what is the knowledge? Well, Paul is very clear that that knowledge is Christ, but we also have the benefit of Scripture. We have the benefit of Paul's writings here. It's real easy. Uh, we're here a few hours every Sunday, a few hours every Wednesday, and it can become real easy to let this right here be your only source of, of nourishment, of spiritual nourishment. Don't rely purely on the man in this pulpit or a podcast, or your favorite author, a set of authors, or your favorite blog. Don't rely just on those things. All of those things, including the man in this pulpit, derive their authority from Scripture. And when I say authority, I mean knowledge. That is where it comes from. That is your source of truth. So many Christians walk around the planet today ignorant of the God they worship. Yes, they have the really basic Sunday school tenant and answers, but they are ignorant of who God is and who he says he is. That's more important. More important than you know how to say God, Jesus. Who does God say that he is? And this is where, as students of Scripture, we want to live. Look at Ephesians Chapter 4, 11 through 14, <clears throat> he goes, and this is, this is Paul again. He says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Good. For building up the body of Christ until we attain 
to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure, excuse me, of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, but listen to this, we may no longer be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. There is no shortage of bad theology out there. And I guarantee in a room this size and a crowd this big, some of you are really into it. It's easy. It makes sense. That God looks like me. I can identify with that God. That God gives me the things I want. But is it the God of the Bible? And I don't just mean like one obscure verse in a transliteration of a translation moved into English, back into Greek, and in Hebrew, and then back out to English. You're like, oh, that makes sense. And he goes on to say, rather, I'm speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way in him, Christ, who is the head. And from the whole body joined and held together by every joint which is, uh, in which it's equipped. And each part is working properly and makes the body grow so it builds itself up. So if we are all united in the gospel, we are all understanding the same gospel. And that's the point. That's why Chris is up here every week teaching and teaching and proclaiming and teaching so that we can be unified in the gospel. Let's look at verse 3. It's getting time. Anybody feeling? Come up here. I'm waiting. Got you. Verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God. Remember, we just talked about they had a zealousness, but not a knowledge, right? So being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So here we are. We are to submit to the righteousness of God as an example for the lost. As an example for the lost. I know a lot of you are afraid to have conversations with unbelievers because They're going to ask you questions and you don't know the answers. Well, there's two remedies for that. Number one, take up and read. Take up and read scripture. Promise you'll learn it. Number two, you don't have to know all the answers. It is not your responsibility to save anybody. It is your responsibility to proclaim the gospel and to give a defense for the reason you have hope and believe. But not everybody's called to be, you know, uh, uh, an exquisite theologian, but you are called to proclaim. And so if you understand this righteousness of God and and you understand that the world is seeking to establish their own righteousness, then you can have that conversation. Paul is actually echoing back here uh, when he talks about uh, this this ignorance, this righteousness. He's referring back to Romans chapter 1, and he gives three points in that chapter Um, is that God's righteousness is perfect. We're settled. Yep, we're in chapter 10. We're good with that. God's righteousness is made ours by faith alone. Yep, we got that. And then God's righteousness can only be made ours by Christ. So flip that. If God's righteousness is perfect, and we do want that for uh, unbelievers, 
And God's righteousness is made ours by faith alone. And then that righteousness can only be made ours by faith alone through Christ. Where do you come into the equation? You proclaim. You have the conversations. But it is, it is Christ's duty to gather those who the Father has given him. So don't feel burdened or scared when you don't have all of the knowledge or the, the winning, you know, stings for the argument. It's okay. It's all right. Because God will save whom he's going to save in the good way. There's also something here we can't miss. When being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. There's covenant language here. We reviewed those in chapter 5, but unable to achieve righteousness under the Mosaic Covenant, the Jews set up their own standards. Yes, they followed it to the law, but they would not submit to the righteousness of God. Translated, they would not submit to Christ. Colossians 1.15, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Love Colossians, by the way. One of my favorite books. But he is the image of the invisible God. Is God righteous? Interactive time. Yes? Yes? Say it again. Is his righteousness perfect? And Christ is the image of the invisible God. So to reject Christ is to reject God. And that's where Paul's going here. And he says something here too. They did not submit to God's righteousness or they did not submit to Christ. And this is the only time in Scripture this phrase is used. Only time. They did not submit. It's a very precise way to describe the gospel. It's the antithesis of the gospel. This is what we do when we use the, we use the language, we're saved, we, we believe. But what we're actually doing is setting aside ourselves and submitting and it's not, it's not a, you know, uh, I willingly did this. But through faith, yes, you did. The Spirit enabled you to want this, to crave this, to yearn for this. And so we, as believers, acknowledge our absence of righteousness. We have none. We acknowledge our wretched state, and we submit ourselves to the righteousness of God because this is the only way we can dig ourselves out. You know, the thing, about, the thing about holes is if you're in one and you dig to get out, you keep making your hole bigger. And that's, that's our sinful state. Instead, we submit and stop, and Christ comes and pulls us out of that hole. Now, what's interesting here and what Paul is referencing and certainly what he's thinking about is that the Jews were masters of the law. They were doctors of the law, and they knew every nuance of it. And when I say the law, that's a big word, right? There's a big term. There's a lot to unpack there. But just understand what we're dealing specifically here is with the moral law. We know this is the moral law that was written on Adam's heart, and it's continued to be written on ours. Every person ever born written with the moral law on their heart. But Paul, being one of the most intelligent men of his time, and he himself was a scholar of Mosaic law. And we read, and he, was a, he even studied under Gamaliel the Elder, who's actually referenced in Acts as being one of the members of the Sanhedrin that wanted to let Peter and John go. Sanhedrin wanted to kill him, and, and Gamaliel was like, eh, maybe not, not a good idea. So this was Paul's teacher. Kind of a fun 
fun fact. But we read in Philippians, he, he, Paul's going over all of his fleshly merits, right? All of the reasons why uh, he should be considered great. And it's pretty good. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, warriors. A Hebrew of Hebrews. And as to the law, he was a Pharisee. There was none more intelligent or learned in the ancient world in the Hebrew culture than the Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. Remember Stephen? And as to righteousness, I was under the law, blameless. That's really good credentials. But then he goes on in, in, in verse 7 here. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Do you notice a pattern, by the way, in Paul's language? All of the time, loss. I count it worthless. I count it nothing. I count God great. He's saying, I have every reason, probably more than most of you, to be proud of myself, to look at my own righteousness. But then he goes on and says something here. He says, For his sake, that is Christ, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Again, here is this language, this accursedness, this casting off. And he uses a word here. Your, your translations might say rubbish, garbage, refuge, trash, dung. In Greek, this is a shocking word, skubilon. It's excrement, but not the friendly word that we know. And it was meant to be shocking. When, when, the, when the Philippians were reading this, they're, yep, pause, oh. And he sees this shocking word. And he's saying, all of my fleshly goodness, all of my, all of my earthly merits, my, my bodily greatness is not even worth my excrement. And this is strong language. And so Paul wants us to understand that this ignorance of the righteousness of God, the seeking to establish our own righteousness is filth, is worthless. The body can't even use it. It's what the body doesn't want. Christ is both the righteousness of God, and the one who provides the righteousness of God. All right, let's look at verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. No, he is not saying we do not have to follow the law anymore. He is not saying we are not subject to the moral law written on our hearts, because it's written on your heart. Can't, can't erase it. But Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. If you read this verse and you stop at Christ is the end of the law, that is heresy. Finish the verse. For righteousness to everyone who believes. So where is our source of righteousness? Christ. The unbeliever's source of righteousness is in himself. Go ahead and put that uh, antinomianism slide up. So there's this big long word, big $10 word here, antinomianism. And it comes from the Greek anti and namos, right? It means against law or no law. 
And it's really taking the principle of salvation by faith, which is what we believe, and divine grace to the point of asserting that the saved, that is us, that is believers, are not bound to follow the moral law. That is the Ten Commandments. We're not bound to it. Now, not many of us in here would say, oh, I don't believe in that. But to some extent, you do. To some extent, you think that it doesn't apply. We all do. We all fight it. But the law points to Christ. To reject the moral law is to reject Christ. The moral law was our tutor and remains so. But Christ is not the end of the law. It's the end of the law for righteousness. We no longer can achieve or strive for righteousness through the law. That doesn't mean we shouldn't keep it. The gospel is the end of all human attempts to achieve righteousness. Our salvation is not dependent on our ability to fulfill the law. Christ did this. The perfection of the law is not able to be inherited by us. The only thing we inherit through the law is death. But through Christ, as our, as our, our co-heir, we inherit righteousness through him. The law gives us specific names for our sins. This is one of the purposes it serves. Lying, murdering, coveting, adultering, stealing, blaspheming. Those words are still very valid for us today, Christian. You cannot live your life as you will and just rely on the good graces of Christ. Yes, you would perhaps fly into the kingdom with the smell of smoke on you, but that's a life poorly lived. Fulfill does not mean abolish. Matter of fact, if you go to Matthew 5.17, Christ says, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill the law. Well, fulfill doesn't mean it's gone. It means he, unique in all of history, in all of creation, in all of the known existence, was able to fulfill that law. No one else. So he says, I am the one that does it. So the covenant of works could not be completed by man. Remember, this was that covenant given to Adam. Do not eat. That was all he had to do, was not eat. But he did, failed. So Christ comes along, right, as the second Adam or the last Adam, and he meets the terms of this covenant, of this contract. Thus, the terms have been met. So now the contract can be completed. So allowing humanity to now complete this contract before a righteous God. The contract language fails somewhat because we think of complete, done, kaput, out. But now it allows us to obey the law. So those who follow the law to its logical end will find Christ. We are not freed from the obligation of the moral law. We are, however, freed to obey the moral law written on our hearts. So if Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, our righteousness can only be found in him. If you take this all the way back to verse one, he's saying, I pray for you brothers. Understand this. This is the logical end. Christ is the Messiah. He is the one who saves. And Paul has us understand here again that spiritual apathy, willful ignorance, and selfishness are not acceptable Christian attributes. Pray with me.